For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 2, The Scoundrel's Son. The Aquitaine of today is simply a province of France, but a thousand years ago it was an independent country, and it was far richer and more powerful than its neighbor, medieval France, was. Its beginnings were lost to history even then. Men had painted marvelous beasts on the walls of caves in the Aquitaine countless centuries before the Romans arrived, and when the Romans did arrive, Julius Caesar knew it as one of the three parts of the barbarian Gaul he conquered. As time measured and generations rolled majestically past, the Romans were eventually shoved aside, and it was the Visigoths coming up from their settlements to the south who did the shoving. Accordingly, the Aquitaine's traditions were strongly flavored by the sensual Mediterranean, which left its colder, grimmer neighbors to the east, the Franks, both envious and hostile. It also had enviable control of land access to much of Spain, which was a center of European Catholicism at a time when the church was the center of life in Europe. Its ruler, the Duke of Aquitaine, was accordingly very rich and very powerful, one of the greatest nobles in Western Europe. We still prize places that flew his blood-red flag with its ferocious golden lion, the vineyards of Bordeaux, the ramparts of the Pyrenees, white sand beaches stretching hundreds of miles that fronted the restless Atlantic, a silvery skein of some of the most beautiful rivers in Europe, forests of walnut and oak. Its scale encompassed trading towns, forests, farmlands, coastal salt flats, grasslands, vineyards, fruit orchards. In today's terms, it's as if the United States consisted of a chunk of the Great Plains, while the Aquitaine would occupy almost everything south to the Texas border and west to the Pacific. In the year 1126, Duke William IX, all zest and drama, died, 
leaving his son, William X, to rule the ancestral lands his family had controlled for hundreds of years. If you recall, young William had been married, we think not willingly, to an aristocratic girl named Eanor, who was the daughter of his father's mistress. One has to say that the union of William X and Eanor feels entirely wrong to our modern minds, but their ferociously determined parents, William IX and Dangerous, the dangerous one, made up their minds that his son would marry her daughter, and there was no appeal from that lordly decision. When they married, William X was 21, Eanor probably 12 or 13. William likely had little interest in his duty-bound wedding to the daughter of the woman who had pushed his own mother out of the house. As for Eanor, probably accustomed to being disregarded in the dramatic sweep of her mother's life, one can assume she had small opportunity to object. Or, we have to say arguably much reason, the marriage made her a great duchess. The improbable pair were married, that was that, and married life being what it was, happy or unhappy together, they had three children, first a girl, then another girl, then at last a precious son. The first girl, named Eleanor, was born, we think, in 1124, two years or so into their marriage. Because she was just another girl baby, no one was overly particular about recording her birth date. Even her name seemed a shrug or perhaps a family joke. Eleanor could have been a play on her mother's name, meaning another Eleanor. In later days, her name would be anglicized, and she would be known as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Her grandparents, William the Ninth and his Dangerous, had been so very glamorous. In comparison, Eleanor's parents, William the Tenth and Eleanor, do seem rather dwarfed. Still, whatever the physical and emotional state of his household, William the Tenth did take after his vivid father in some notable ways. Educated himself at the knee of a man known for reading, for making poetry, for inviting even traveling Muslims to his table, William X, in turn, took care to educate his own children, including his daughters. Eleanor's father also became a great patron of singers and poets. His family life may have been born of pressure and duress, but we can still believe that it was also shaped by ideas, by books and talk, by laughter and wit. His firstborn, his daughter Eleanor, grew up in this world, where talking, thinking, reading, and imagining came quite naturally. Eleanor's grandfather, the epic William IX, died when she was two. Her father, William X, now succeeded to the Aquitanian throne in his turn. He inherited a realm which occupied fully a third of what is now France. He was wealthy, he had a wife with whom he seems to have lived at least peacefully, he had his son after two daughters had been born. His sophisticated court, modeled on his father's, welcomed Europe's best artists, musicians, and poets. Even Muslims from neighboring Spain, not invited to most Christian tables, brought their ideas, calculations, and observations to his great hall. The world had become more leisurely and sophisticated than in his father's or grandfather's day, so it could indeed be a very pleasant life in the warmth of his capital city, Poitiers, basking on its plateau carved by rivers on three sides, 
the ruins of a Roman amphitheater at its center. Francois Rabelais would live in Poitiers in his own day, and North America's Cajuns descended from its people. Food, music, wine, poetry under the starry skies, more wine. If the mood struck, William could move to other family castles at the shore or in the lavender-perfumed southern countryside. However, all was not a scented dream. If you were a great noble, you fought. Duke of Aquitaine, as well as ruler of smaller Gascony and Poitiers, William had lands to defend, friends to help, rebellions to suppress. He fought with the neighboring Normans. He fought with the neighboring French. He fought rebels inside his own borders, particularly the half-crazy Lusians, whose ferocity was thought and self-evident result of their family's descent from a cursed fairy, part woman, part serpent. He fought, off and on, with the Holy Catholic Church. And then, in the midst of his wars, his wife Eanor died, as did his son, the boy only four years old, the mother not yet thirty. For the first time in his life, William X played a role that his father had never experienced. He was a widower. Most noblemen with castles to run and inheritances to secure remarried, and remarried quickly. William X's subsequent marital history is clouded. He may or may not have married a lady known as Emma, the daughter of one of his vassals. Even if he did marry Emma, we know of no other legitimate children for William X. Instead, at the age of 40, father of two remaining children, both daughters, he made the momentous decision to give up a quest for another son. He named little Eleanor his heir. This was a tremendous leap. She would be the first female to rule the Aquitaine in its recorded history. Just a child, this little girl was suddenly one of the greatest heiresses in the world, provided, of course, that no rival took it all from her. If she managed to hold on to what she had been given, she would have, for the rest of her life, the fantastic power, the blood pledge fealty, the wealth and the lands, the obligations and the rights of a great lord. She would also have a great lord's problems, usually solved by her male peers with the broadswords they belted to their waists. William X, then, turned out to be entirely remarkable in unexpected ways. Married to a woman he did not want, but probably never married to another. Rather than taking another wife in search for another son, he turned a thoughtful face to a little girl. However, as was so often case with the Aquitanian dukes, the Catholic Church weighed in, ready to do battle. The fight may have been over the age-old cause, money. Eleanor's grandfather, the epic William IX, had tried to make his own peace with the Church by going on crusade. Her father went on pilgrimage instead. If chronicles tell the truth, her grandfather barely made it back from his crusade alive. Her father would not be so lucky. William X headed toward medieval Spain, which, along with its patron, St. James, meant a great deal to medieval Christendom. Both were known by wonderful stories of magic rocks on Spain's salt-spanned coast and a rudderless boat set by angels to float upon the wild blue sea. Let's step aside for a moment to say that Spain as we know it didn't exist at the time. 
The lands there, collectively known then as Iberia, were nothing but a collection of small rival kingdoms, but our sense of the place in our era makes it easier to use the modern name. The man who was to become St. James has no single story by now. The passing of several millennia can do that to anyone. He and his brother John are believed to have been the first to join Jesus as disciples. They were also two of the three people permitted to witness the transfiguration when God spoke on earth and called Jesus' son. After those spectacular days walking beside the Son of God, James burned with zeal to spread news of Christ, arriving in Spain only a few years after the crucifixion. They say he was preaching the gospel near the Ebro River when the Virgin Mary appeared to him. She told him it was time to leave Spain and return to Judea, but legend doesn't say whether she mentioned that he would be returning to a martyr's death. In the year 44, he was either thrown from the roof of the Temple of Jerusalem or beheaded by the same Herod who had pushed Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Obviously of great holiness and awe-inspiring closest to Christ himself, James was quickly raised to sainthood by the Catholic Church and to mythic status by early Christians, becoming one of the greatest saints in the crowded pantheon of medieval Catholicism. His legend goes on to say that his disciples took his body back across the Mediterranean, landing in what is now northwest Spain, a trip akin to, say, leaving Miami in a small boat and managing to end up at the port of Seattle. The devout of the day explained this extraordinary voyage by insisting that angels, not men, carried his body away from Judea, laying it tenderly in a rudderless boat that might even have been carved of marble. Protected by God himself, or so legend says, the holy martyr's corpse came to the shores of Spain where a magical rock closed around his relics to protect them. His bones were then lost for some 800 years. Depending on the source you choose to believe, either a shepherd or a holy bishop named Theodomir discovered James' remains in the early 9th century, guided to the sacred spot by a great star. The place where they were found then came to be called Compostela, perhaps a corruption of the lovely Latin phrase Campostelae, plain of stars, with great James as its patron saint. We don't know how a local legend among Spanish Christians of the 9th century grew into one of the supreme medieval pilgrimage sites. It's only rivals the Holy Land and Rome itself. To this day, tens of thousands of tourists make their way to Compostela every year these days happily blogging about whether it's acceptable to forego medieval-style sandals for state-of-the-art hiking boots. What we do know is that Eleanor's father, William X, decided to join the pilgrimage to Compostela in the year 1137. It was a decision that would change the destiny of an entire country. Why make a pilgrimage? Over hundreds of generations and thousands of years, places beautiful and plain, hidden and known, tied to the stars, to the trees, to the sun and the moon, somehow have been understood to be touched by our gods. Wanting to honor and possibly share in divinity, prehistoric men built altars, held festivals, and sewed the gowns of virgin priestesses at these sacred places. As Christianity rose from the obscurity of its birth, it cleverly appropriated ancient pagan sites. A pragmatic 7th century pope, 
writing to a priest in Britain, was quite plain-spoken. He said, We ought to take advantage of these well-built temples by purifying them and dedicating them to the service of the true God, so that the people, seeing their temples are not destroyed, will leave their idolatry while still going to these places as they always have. Pleading for eternal redemption or relief from sickness and pain, searching out community, buffing a reputation for piety, offering thanks to the birth of a son or the defeat of a rival, maybe just craving a change from the same old faces against the same old forest year after year, Christians traveled for months over remarkable distances, alone and in groups, to go to the places dedicated to their god. Not a few were required by their confessors to go as penance for truly noteworthy sins, which was probably William's case. In later years, if you were wealthy and indolent, you might pay someone else to take the trouble and go for you. But in the more innocent days of William's time, personal fulfillment of one's vow was essential. It wasn't an easy trip, beset as medieval travel usually was, by bad roads, non-existent bridges, unplanned expenses, flea-infested inns, thieves, illness, bad weather, unappealing companions, and ghastly food. Falling by the wayside wasn't just an idle phrase. An 8th century observer noted of female pilgrims in his day, few remained pure, with all too many left stranded roadside in France. The fact that women could make pilgrimages largely free of seduction and even rape was a sign of how sophisticated everyone had become by the mid-1100s. Pilgrims could offer the many difficulties of their travels as convincing proof of sorrow for an ill-considered past life and could hope to benefit from proximity to relics, a bone, a shoe, an actual vial of the blood of a saint, even the belongings of Jesus himself. If you made it all the way to Palestine, you could pay to see Adam and Eve's bed and follow that up with a viewing of the pillar of salt that had once been Lot's unfortunate wife. The success of the First Crusade, fifty years before William's pilgrimage, had flooded Europe with relics carried lovingly from the Holy Land, resulting in some jostling and shoving among competing religious sites for the reputation of possessing the most compelling offerings. One church, obviously angling to snatch as much pilgrimage traffic as possible, advertised itself as possessing not only a piece of the true cross on which Christ had been crucified, but part of his cradle and pieces from his tomb, not to mention snippets from a robe worn by the Virgin Mary. Apparently, a taste for all of this had to be developed by repeated exposure, since a journalist of our time recently described a museum exhibition of medieval relics as grisly. But back in the day, one shrine was delighted to advertise that it owned strands of hair torn from Mary's head as she watched her son die. The most fervent pilgrims went to Jerusalem, reclaimed from the Muslim control by the First Crusade in 1099, to walk where Christ had walked and to see the remains of the true cross or the holy sepulcher. Rome, the power center of the ancient world as well as Christendom, was also highly favored. The bones of revered St. James did as much for Compostela, soon a solid competitor in terms of preferred destinations, especially as its location on Spain's northern coast placed it almost irresistibly close to anyone living in Western Europe. 
Pilgrims took to the way of St. James wearing scalloped shells sewn to their cloaks or on their hats as a symbol of their destination. Why seashells became St. James' symbol is now lost. They might relate to his wondrous voyage from Judea to Spain, or perhaps the sea-bound location of his final resting place. For William X, it would have been a trip of slightly more than 500 miles from his court in Poitiers. Assuming medieval travelers, with their baggage, could cover some 15 miles a day, it would have taken about a month each way. The pilgrims rose at dawn, a sliver of moon still marking the sky, then followed wayside crosses as we would follow highway signs. They stopped along the way to eat, sleep, feed animals, wash stockings and feet, check each other for lice. Everyone would also head for the roadside stands selling pilgrim's badges, thin metal plaques that clipped to a hat or cloak and gave the wearer special rights to good rates at inns and toll booths. And they could buy souvenirs, a statue of the Virgin Mary, or maybe a more costly, if to our minds suspiciously available, piece of the true cross. By the way, we can say suspicious with good reason. There's an anecdote that some 450 years after William's more innocent era, John Calvin would complain that so many churches claimed parts of the true cross that, said Calvin with considerable irritation, if all the pieces were collected together, they'd have filled an entire ship. Duke William chose an Easter pilgrimage, a popular time of year for pilgrims to take to the road. We aren't sure if his priest demanded he make the trip or if he decided on his own to atone for his array of sins, ranging from a family favorite, cheating the church out of tax revenue, to his support for the current antipope. And we need to take a break here, since antipopes are an issue for our William and his peers. Antipopes were an embarrassing reality of the Catholic Church life for a thousand years, beginning in the third century. By William's day, an antipope could claim election by many of the voting cardinals and even enjoyed a reasonable level of international support, but never won full recognition. Typically, his chances were clouded either because he held what some considered heretical views or because he had emerged from an election clouded by some irregularity. The simultaneous existence of two popes, each claiming to be Christ's voice on earth, was certainly problematic for the church, a situation that was particularly acute during the 11th and 12th centuries. In some cases, it's still difficult to judge who the real pope was, or should have been. As for William's pilgrimage, there are also stories that his intent wasn't penitential at all, that instead, he went to Compostela to pray to Holy St. James for more power over his enemies. And there, for the moment, we need to leave our William. We'll be rejoining him in our next episode as he makes his way to Compostela. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge by Karen Markle Knapp, soon to be available at Amazon Books. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please give us a thumbs up, save us as a favorite, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcast.